This is episode seven of the Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who have tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined, or maybe they didn't imagine it, but they have become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into business, or they found a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got where they are, and what has influenced their journey. We might also discuss taking the leap, making changes, or perhaps even how to be happy. Today, we're talking with Nikki Clark, uh, president of the Ontario Black History Society, founder and host of The Nikki Clark Show, author, singer, songwriter, and just announced last week, the NDP MPP candidate for Mississauga Malton. Nikki is very passionate about making and leaving a positive impact in the world. This woman is all about the hustle, and she's had so many experiences that I'm looking forward to talking about today. I cannot wait to hear all about her journey. Uh, she was born in Jamaica and immigrated to Canada. Uh, she is a McGill University graduate in film and communications. She also has an honors diploma from Sheridan College in early childhood education, is fluent in three different languages, and has uh, been given quite a few awards for her work in the community and excellence in teaching. So, Nikki, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to have a chat with you. It's been some time since we last saw each other, so I am very, very happy to be here and, yeah, talk, talk to you more about what we've been doing over the little while. Yeah, and I think, Nikki, I think you and I probably met about 10 years ago. Yeah. And if I recall, <laughs> it was at a celebrity gifting lounge. It sure was. Yeah, and yeah. I was there with Orange Fish, and um, we'd been asked to participate to give away gifts to celebrities. And I think it was during TIFF, but, you know, when I met you, you were like a breath of fresh air. Um, you're so sweet and kind, very sincere, not to mention you have a killer smile. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so then you and I have stayed in touch, and we've actually run into each other here and there, kind of in weird spots sometimes. Uh, but I've always loved it when I've run into you. You know, you're always so pleasant and kind. And, oh, thank you. Um, one of the things that I love is that you're not afraid of change. You're willing to take risks to make things happen. And Nikki, I have no idea how you take on everything you do. You are most certainly one busy lady. Well, <laughs> you know, Janet, I just have to say that whatever you love doesn't become work and you don't watch the clock. You just throw yourself in it and you just enjoy every single second of what you do. And that's what it's been like for me. You know, my journey has evolved a lot over the span of, okay, I'm going to admit it, 50 years. <laughs> I'll be 50 in December. And and I look back and I'm thinking, wow, that took a lot of, that took a lot of courage. You know, I have to give myself credit. And, and I'm so grateful for just having that um, fearlessness to move into other areas of my life. So yes, it's it's been um, it's been a glorious, glorious journey. It's been up and it's been down. It's been I've been to the valley. I've been into the you know I've been up to the mountaintop. But every experience has enriched my life. Yeah, you know, there's a few things there that I love that you said. I love that you said um, you 
you could should kind of like congratulate yourself on the journey and for taking risks because I feel like as women we are sometimes so hard on ourselves Mm -hmm. that we don't take the time to say yeah I took that risk maybe it worked maybe it didn't but I'm glad that I tried yeah you know absolutely yeah Um, but I think I think women are very um they're they're their own worst critics oh for sure their own worst enemies you know, and I think that's just the way we've been socialized and uh, we're, we're socialized to give and to nurture and to help and to, uh, which is wonderful. But when it comes to the self-care, when it comes to maybe, you know, patting ourselves on, on our own back and saying, yeah, we did it, that's kind of frowned upon. So uh, I think it's really important to step out of that um, social blueprint, societal blueprint and just congratulate yourself and celebrate yourself. But that took time. I only started doing that. For many years, I feel guilt about going to the hairdresser or doing my nails or doing something good for me because I was, I was in the belief that if it didn't uh, make someone else look good or shine, then uh, I couldn't feel good about doing that. And then I spoke to someone and she, she, set, she set me free. She set my mind free. And I was liberated to, to, to thank myself and to, and to make myself feel good about all the things that I've been doing for others. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, and you're right. I think it does take time. First of all, um, you know, obviously you do not look like you're 50. I have to put that out there and say that. <laughs> Thank you. That <laughs> for sure, good. for sure. Um, but let's kind of, like, let's start off, um, like, when you were younger. How old were you immigrated to Canada? Do you remember how you felt at that time? Were you excited and let's start with your journey and, and so people can learn a little bit more about you from the beginning and then we'll talk about where you are now. Okay, well, I came to Canada in 1970. Uh, 1970 was the time where Pierre, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, our Prime Minister's father, who was the, father, the Prime Minister at that time, he created the immigration policy, uh, which was kind of frowned upon by the, the country, but it was uh, a wonderful um, thing for immigrants from the West Indians to be a part of because it gave them a chance to have a second start in life. And my parents, being um, you know young adults, and I was three years old, we took that opportunity to come to Canada, which was um, the land of milk and honey and, and the promised land. Uh, to give us um, this, this wonderful chance of, of renewal. So we came through uh, Montreal, which was the port of entry for many West Indians, and we went from our hot climate to the dead of winter, which was <laughs> December uh, 1970, and, and I was my first experience of snow. I don't remember having a lot of snow in my memory. And just being like, there's this white stuff. And I remember being on the plane for the very first time and panicking uh, because I, I, my mother, who, um, who uh, went to Jamaica to pick me, to, to bring me to, to, Montreal, to Montreal, um, we had the conversation very briefly in the, in the airplane. And I was asking for my grandmother and my uncle, who I left behind. Um, so I just remember that panic moment, and then it was kind of a blur after that, after you know, seeing the snow. But yeah, there were a lot of changes very quickly. Uh, my parents had to leave me behind for a year, and I stayed with my grandmother while they were getting themselves settled. 
in Canada. So they had to um, get themselves a new job, and they also had to learn French. They, they had to pass a certain amount of um, French credits in order for them to be granted um, stay there and also for them to sponsor me from Jamaica. Oh, so wow. with that, they left very comfortable positions. My mother, you know, was doing very well in a prestigious school in Jamaica. My father uh, left a very good sales position, and they started over. My mother was a domestic. My father worked in a factory so because they didn't have the Canadian experience. So they, they were willing to take and make the sacrifice so that they could start over. So when they finally got themselves and the paperwork together, I came later, and uh, we lived in um, what was called, well, it's still called Pointe aux Trembles, uh, and it, <laughs> a very, very French um, area. Uh, we were the only Fr- uh, English family, and for that matter, we were the only black family in that neighborhood. So the early years, from, from the memories that I started uh, to get in that, um, in that time period, was probably maybe four, four and a half, uh, it was very um, challenging for us. Uh, and I remember vividly uh, being chased at some times, being called the N-word um, or chakalaule, which is milk chocolate, because they would look at my mother, who um, is a black woman but very light-skinned, from, you know, mixed ancestry, and my father was, you know, of a darker hue, and they would see me, the product, <laughs> and, and they were not open to diversity at that point, and they, they, I was, uh, the, 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 the union of what they hated, the product of this union, so um, it was rough, I was, like I said, I was chased, I was spat on, uh, one time I was coming out of my father's car. Uh, Saturday was the day we, we did our grocery run. And coming out of the car, I was jumped. Wow. I didn't even know who this young, this little girl was. She, she couldn't have been more than maybe seven years old. And I was, you know, almost five. And she started to, um, you know, hit me and, and call me names. And, and, and she wasn't hurting me, but I was just stunned by the hatred. I was stunned by the whole, um, you know, this rage that overcame her just by seeing me. So my father was very upset, and he went to speak to uh, her aunt, who was our landlord. We were living in a, tri- in a triplex, um, you know, like a, a three-layered kind of home, and we were at the top, and uh, they were living um, in the, on the main floor. So he went to speak to her. He was very upset, exchanged words. And my mother just picked me up, and, and she was very upset. She was crying, and... Uh, was comforting me, and I wasn't crying. Like I said, I was I was just in a place of, like, disbelief. I didn't understand what was going on. And my father came back, and uh, he was very emotional. And, and I remember seeing him, you know, cup his head in his hands. And, and my father's very stoic, very strong man, and I saw him break down. And I asked him if he was okay, because I was worried. And, and he said yes. And I, and, I, and I just said very pointedly, why did the girl hate me? And my father looked at me and he started to explain what racism was in terms that I could understand for a four and a half year old. And yeah, because that's a that's that, that's a very, very young age to have to deal with that. And and, and if you look at pictures before, 
And if anyone who's watched, um, you know, the Cosby show back in the day when it was really, really popular, and you remember the youngest child, Rudy Huxtable? Yeah. That's what I look like. <laughs> Honestly, the pigtails and, you know, the whole thing. And and I was thinking, wow, that, that, that has to be some kind of... Um, whatever they were pouring into this little girl because she was a little girl, whatever was taught to her must've been something severe for her to um, snap like that. You know? So I said, uh, so he, my father, you know, proceeded to tell me uh, that I was very special, but there were going to be people who would just not see how special I was. And they would just see my color. And, but, but, that wouldn't change how special I was on the inside. But I had to work harder and I had to be a lot stronger than a lot of the other kids because of how special I was. And that stayed with me my whole life. From that very moment, I, I did nothing less than work very hard. And I excelled in school and I always had a master plan to do and be the best because that was instilled very early. And that was kind of a, a survival instinct because I couldn't afford to be mediocre because mm. it would work against me. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. This, is, this is where it started. And, and then um, my, thought, my parents were very good in recognizing that um, having these early experiences of this you know, confrontational racism could have done some severe damage to uh, my... Um, concepts, my self-esteem. So they started to pour into me a lot of attention and teaching me about my black history. So they would teach me about, you know, the civilization uh, in, in Africa, where that began, and also the origins of, of, um, of, of my more recent ancestry in Jamaica. So this helped me to develop a, a healthy understanding of who I was, where I came from. So when the incidents ever arose again of racism, I was strong enough to fight back or to just walk away. And I learned to pick my battle from then. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So did you find, um, so you experienced um, like racism at this very, very early age, and I'm guessing right. it kind of still occurred throughout life. Yeah. Um, have you seen a change at all in Canada, or do you think it is still as prevalent as it used to be? Well, I've experienced more of a subtle racism over the last few years, mm. where I, I met face-to-face <laughs> um, -face, uh, ugly, um, confrontational, overt racism. Now it's subtle. Now it's polite. And, and there's certain things that are happening uh, where I'm, I have to even scratch my head and go, was that a racist remark? Or was that a nonverbal um, communication of racism? You know, so now it, it's not quite in your face, but it's still questionable. Right. And, and then there are people, you know, like, for example, I'll go somewhere and maybe I'll experience nonverbal uh, where someone will maybe, you know, move away if I sit down or, um, or they'll, you know, kind of clutch the purse. I, I don't know. But just it, it, it's not said, but it's something that's picked up. It's a nonverbal cue. Mm. And I'll say to someone, you know, just to kind of like check myself, check my reality, 
I go, this situation just happened. Is that racist? <laughs> and then I'll get, I'll get, I'll get two reactions like, ah, oh, come on, no, like you're just being sensitive, you're overreacting. And then I'll get, oh yeah, sure, girl, I just got that the other day. That just happened to me. Yeah. So, and I'm like, okay. So it really, it's a subjective thing, but yeah, very subtle. Yeah, very subjective and depends on the perspective. Probably depends on where you are too at at the time Mm -hmm. that it happens. And, and, you know, sometimes it also affects, um, it gets affected by other things that are also going on in our life too and how we take on that perception, right? Right, right. Um, Okay, so you grew up in Montreal. Mm-hmm. and went to high school there, I'm assuming. Yeah. And then after high school, you went to McGill? I did. Yes. Uh, well, I went to John Abbott College. They, they have, uh, the Quebec system has the CEGEP before going into um, university. So I went to John Abbott uh, and studied social sciences, which prepared me for uh, the degree program at McGill. And so... Um, were you finding, like, as you went from, like, your little small neighborhood to then, like, a larger high school and then to university, was um, there more diversity as you got older, or did you kind of feel still segregated quite a bit? Um, yeah, it, it, the, the diversity didn't happen until university, where there were, there were more uh, people who looked like me, but uh, the... From pretty much elementary school up until high school, I was just one of the few black girls in the school. Um, but university opened up. It was an international uh, scene now where students from all over the world, I was meeting West Indians. I was meeting, um, you know, American, black Americans. Uh, I was meeting African students. So it was a great pool of, of um, really smart people and and uh, this, this great opportunity to, to learn from them and exchanges we had I was part of uh, just just to get to know who were in the community I was part of a, um, a organization called um, the, the black student network so I was able to you know meet with them and and have these little discussions and panels and um, also like uh, what they call sets like little parties where we would get to know each other and try each other's food so that opened my mind uh, and gave me more experience in um, knowing more about the people in the black community in Montreal, which is very small. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Like, it's like, um, I lived in, uh, South Korea for two and a half years Uh and I, you know, every weekend it was going out with the expat community. And part Uh of that was, you know, then you could just speak English. You were around people who wanted kind of the same food and you kind of had, different but similar opinions or experiences and that's just uh, also like provides a comfort level too right right um so okay so what did you take at mcgill um i, I started off in industrial relations which i hated <laughs> and then i made the decision to go into film and communications it wasn't really the most favorite choice in my house my parents are you know very um, academically driven, um, disciplinarian Jamaican. So the idea was that I would become an accountant or a lawyer or a teacher, something safe. And there wasn't an understanding of where I could get a career from film and communication. Right. And- um, but I was trying to share, like really kind of sell the idea that I was going to be a journalist and that I could find work 
in this. So, uh, and, and to be a talk show host was kind of like the big sell out of that journalist idea. Uh, and that time, it was like 1987, the Oprah Winfrey show, you know, was, was launching on TV. And, and I saw her and I said, I want to be her. Uh-huh. I want, I love what she does. She's, she's funny. She's, she's, she's a, she's a woman. Um, she's black. Yeah. Uh, she, she, if she can do it, I can do it. So she was actually the inspiration for me to want to go into, uh, the talk show business. And that's what I was planning on doing. And so did you, um, so was it at university and the first time that you kind of saw Oprah on TV that that's what you decided to do? Or did you have that idea prior to that? Well, it started when I was little. I was doing a lot of um, role playing in, in um, you know, having my own show. I'd line up my dolls in my room and I'd interview them. And <laughs> <laughs> and like, it, yeah, I was a very creative child, and and I played I played alone a lot. I didn't have a lot of friends in my neighborhood, so um, I wasn't allowed to go and um, play with many of the children uh, because my parents were protecting me from my early early years. Yeah, of course. And 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 some of the children, quite frankly, although we could play in school, I wasn't allowed in their home. Right. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I can't even so, imagine. So I played a lot alone. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I did. And then my parents were just like, wow, she's very good at, you know, kind of being a ham in front of an audience, which I developed later because of all the practice, um, you know, in front of these dolls. And also, I, I, I wrote a lot. I, I was writing poems from the time I was seven. I wrote a song when I was like eight. I was doing a lot of short stories. My parents said, okay, let's, let's really work on this ability, the talent she has, and I got a typewriter uh, when I was, I think, 12, I started to type out things, and then I also um, got, like, a sound system very early, like, around 14, because I love music, so this really kind of um, enhanced my creative ability, that's part of my brain that responded well to music, responded well to um, performance, art, dance, all those things I was involved in. And, uh, yeah, so I thought this was the sure thing. This will all lead me, um, all these skills, all this talent would lead me to becoming a talk show host. So that's interesting. So from when you were um, little, you had all these kind of skills, traits, characteristics, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, but then your choice going into your first year university had nothing to do with that. Yes, because that wasn't my choice. <laughs> Oh, someone else made that choice for you. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the like I said, the implication was very strong. The suggestion was very strong that I enter into something safe and become someone that they would accept. And and that would be a businesswoman. That would be, you know, a teacher, something like that. Yeah. But. So I took a program that I thought, okay, I could, I, I qualify for it. I think I could do something with it, but I didn't like it at all. And then um, when you went into the communications program, uh, was there like a sigh of relief or a feeling like, oh, this is where I should be? Well, it was a sigh of relief for me because it was a, a really good fit. 
and I was meeting people who were like-minded and I was able to get through my grades. I was able to, you know, really absorb what was going on in my class because I enjoyed it. But, you know, my parents didn't approve. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I was okay with, with taking whatever consequence came from that. And then they just said, well, if you're going to do that, then we're not going to pay for your university. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's okay. I paid for my own university as well. So I said, okay. So I took on my little part-time job. Um, work in retail, and I also <laughs> I had a very interesting job as a collector for the Hudson Bay Company because I spoke French. I was that that wonderful person that would call you to remind you to pay your bill. Oh no way! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what was your first job ever? Um, my first job ever was when I was 17 years old. I worked in Jamaica. How awful was that, right? Like, yeah, that sounds terrible. Uh, it was so. It was so terrible. No, it, I got a seven. Uh, when I was seventeen, my aunt had a company in Montego Bay, and she had like a travel agency. So she hired me to answer the phone and to be a greeter at the airport. So when they came, I'd be like, "Welcome to Jamaica," <laughs> you know, the land full of wood and water kind of thing and they look at me like okay who is a 17 year old kid but it was fun yeah because <laughs> yeah, you're also kind of doing a little bit of acting there too right yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know the, i think the most fun i had is when i was reading everybody and and trying to answer some of the questions they asked me questions about you know, the weather and and where to get good food in, in the area and then, then there was I remember one gentleman came up to me and he was asking me um, what all the swear words meant that he learned from wherever he was from. I think he was from Texas. And I looked at him kind of dumbfounded like, are we really going to have this conversation? So, <laughs> yeah. So with a straight face, I was trying to be as, as you know diplomatic as I could to kind of tell him what they meant and then kind of wash my mouth out with gargle. With <laughs> You're probably thinking, like, why would you learn this? Let's go later on. Um, but, yeah, so it, it was interesting. Yeah, so I did that for about six weeks, and I got a little bit of uh, experience, well, a lot of experience, and a little bit of money from that. And and uh, I got a job working in a real estate agent as a receptionist while I was going to college. And then uh, retail, I worked for Marks & Spencer. Marks & Sparks is what we called it. <laughs> And um, then the Hudson Bay, the Hudson Bay Company, yeah. And so then you finish um, university, and what are you thinking at that point in time? What is it that you want to do? And then what well, do you uh, end up doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to be a journalist, but then I met my ex-husband at school, and I ended up being a wife and a young mother. Oh, okay. So that was a quick turn of events, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so then at what point in time did you decide to re-enter the work world? Well, I had to when my marriage fell apart. So I luckily had my education behind me and I was able to get a job um, in uh, teaching young children. Um, I got a little bit of experience there and then I got a post at Sheridan College. There was an opening for someone to teach child development at night, one class. 
uh, Sheridan and Brampton. And I said, yeah, I can do that. I, I, I didn't have any notes or any preparation, but if they had the syllabus and if I could get the textbook, I knew I could teach it. Yeah, of course. And I did it, and, and I, I did it very well with my um, engaging talk show host style. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they, Listen, those are the people that make the best teachers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we um, it, it was a wonderful run. I, I loved teaching there. So one course turned into part-time work. And I was there for 10 years in 2009. Sorry, from 1999 to 2009. Oh, wow. Teaching at Derby College, yeah. So I taught at the, the Brampton campus. I taught at uh, the Oakville campus. And they had some um, extensions in Mississauga where I taught there as well. In the high school. And so you were teaching, but were you also doing stuff on the side? Like, did you have a side gig when you were teaching? Oh, yeah, I did many. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I was a single mom, and I had uh, a few gigs uh, outside of that to support my three children. Uh, I used to joke and say, oh, I had a, one job per child. <laughs> and, and that was to, you know, just, you know, when, when you're supporting a family in Toronto, it's expensive. Yeah. You know, and it, and it gets even more expensive when you're doing it alone. Um, so uh, it, to, to cover the cost for, you know, housing and clothing and food and then all the other extracurricular things that came in, like book orders and, and pizza days and field trips, this is what I had to do. So I, I worked part-time as a French teacher in a Montessori school, and then I also did some French tutoring, and um, I worked also at Humber part-time. I taught classes there at night, Humber College in the early childhood education faculty, so I was always working, and I was trying to do the best I could for my family. Wow, lots of juggling going on there, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so then uh, you are done um, with teaching, I'm assuming, in 2009. Uh-huh. And so what, what was it that spurred that change? Like, what is it that made you decide, okay, I think I'm ready to move on to something next? Well, I think you just get to that point where you just lose your mojo. And that's what happened to me. I was um, so in love with teaching. And I still am. But I teach in a different way. And the part of marking papers and I guess all the administrative part of what you need to do when you're um, creating structure in the classroom, I think that kind of overwhelmed me and I wasn't convinced that that was going to be it for me for the rest of my life because there was parts of me that that wasn't being addressed, that wasn't um, being utilized, the creative side. So I said, okay, let's see if I can make a balance here in my life and I can teach, and then maybe I can do something creative. And it just so happened that year that I was starting to think that way, I was invited to be interviewed in, um, on an online uh, TV network uh, called thatchannel.com. Oh, and I know thatchannel.com. Do yeah, you know Randy? Yeah, thatchannel.com. Yes, That's so absolutely. funny. <laughs> yes, you, you and the gang. And... They interviewed me, and they heard about the things I was doing in the community, 
uh, I was volunteering and, and then I had like the Beat for Health, the jewelry company that I started in 2006, uh, which, which was another sideline way to make money too, to support my family. So I was sharing my story with them and the producer heard what I did and he said, you know, you, you have an interesting radio voice, got a really good, you know, TV presence, would you consider maybe coming back for another interview? And I said, let me, let me think about it. So two months later, I came back not only with um, an interest in being back on TV, but with an idea for a show that I wanted to produce and I wanted to financially back called And the Beat Goes On. And this is something that I would do like a Saturday evening. It would fit in great with my schedule. It only took maybe an hour, two hours. And then I would be Nikki Clark, you know, instructor Nikki Clark, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And then I, Saturday, I was the next on the mix. That became my radio TV handle. <laughs> I love it. And, this, and then And the Beat Goes On was a show for um, musicians, for performing artists to come on and perform live on the show and be interviewed. So I had some really cool first interviews like Abel, sorry, Abel, who is now known as The Weeknd. Oh, no way. Um, I had uh, Maestro Fresh West. I had um, Saida, uh, uh, I forgot a lot. Um, I had Tanya Mullings. I had like some phenomenal Canadian artists come on the show and perform and get an interview. And then after a while, after about a year of doing this and then trying to manage school, I was really enjoying the show more than the marking and all that stuff. So I made a decision uh, that I wanted to pursue this as a business because people were starting to connect with me from all points of the world. I was getting um, emails from Asia I was uh, getting a following in the United States, and and uh, I had people like Tupac, Tupac's record label, contact me that they wanted to um, promote their artists on the show. So I said, what is this really happening to me here? This little idea that I started, for me, for my own kind of like Saturday night <laughs> entertainment, <laughs> It was becoming a business. So I think I need to really, you know, work on this. So I, I left teaching, and it was a very sad day for me. I was very, very sad, but it was what I needed to do. And started to work on this business model of the show. So I was trying to find ways to monetize, and um, the show, you know, I, there was a lot of stops and starts, and and figuring it out and I made mistakes and hired some people and some people betrayed me and you know the whole thing and I was like okay I know I signed up for this for a reason and the reason has to be more than I really love it it has to be about how I'm adding value to people's lives so I started to think about who I was inviting and what the premise was, and I said, okay, I need to make a little transformation here because I'm also changing as a person. So the show, the show morphed from As the Beat Goes On, which was kind of just kind of a performer's invitation. It became a community invitation. And I invited people from all walks of life to what was now the Nikki Clark show. And someone said, I have to put my name 
as the title of the show. I had to stop being behind the scenes and use who I was and the name so that people could understand what I was about. So the show changed to Transforming Lives One Story at a Time. And Janet, I was so scared. I was so scared because I was, I was allowing not only myself to become vulnerable, I, had, I took off my own mask and I was starting to take off layers and reveal to people who I really was and what my interest was. And I was just praying that people would be interested the same way. You so have- the first show that I had, I had a cancer survivor, I had a rape survivor, and I had someone who just lost a job. But all three were very happy women because they went through the fire, but they are now very successful because of the blemishes, the, the, the burdens um, that became blessings or blessings, blessings mm-hmm. and lessons later on. Oh, I like that. And, and the show was, was well-received. I said, oh, okay, great. So that was 2012 when the show name and premise changed, and then it just grew from what it is to where it is now, 2017. So I've been on my own, um, making my own money from 2009 to now, being able to sustain. And, and so I know, yeah. I think I saw, um, like, is, is the Nikki Clark show sponsored by Rogers TV or is there some sort of affiliation there? Well, the show is on a Rogers channel. It's yeah. on a Rod and Bell channel, but in terms of um, sponsorship, they have the the show distributed, but there's no um, monetary exchange. It's just that the the broadcasting times and and that are um, very uh, graciously and generously um, given to me. So I have the time and the slots available, but uh, in terms of how to make the money, that was all left on me. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I wasn't yeah. sure from the background how that kind of works um, uh-huh. in the sense that I knew that you, you were available on Rogers TV, but I didn't know, like, how did that kind of come about? Well, it came through just a lot of hard work and, and to um, tighten up the images and the production value and, and, and shopping it to different people. And I got a lot of no's. Mm. And then finally, just got to the point where I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing it. I am going to have my own um, TV network online, which I developed in 2014. And it became, I had, um, I created the Nikki Clark Network. So I would take my shows and create a channel there that people could watch. And then I started to produce other people's shows. So I was, you know, producing like yoga shows. Um, I was, I, I have a show called The Foodie Network. So it, if, if the, the TV, the mainstream TV wasn't ready for me I was going to make myself ready for the world so I created this network which was 24 hours of programming of a variety of different shows which I which I produced wow I can't like I can't even get my mind around that like 24 hours of programming and like you have other people that work for you that assist with this correct yeah yeah because I'm like wow that seems crazy yeah yeah so um you know we, we we would produce the shows put them online, and then, you know, people could just click on whenever they wanted to. So they had all of that ready available. And it's, and it's still available now. Yeah, so well, and at that... People... At, Go ahead. Sorry, at that point in time when you did that, in 2014, because um, I'm not 100% sure about the history, 
But had YouTubers really become popular yet or no? I don't think so. YouTube, yeah. No, but YouTubers, like people who had their own YouTube channel. Um, it started to kind of take off then. You know, really, and, uh, okay. the whole, um, yeah, I would say about 2014, 2015, it started to really uh, take flight in terms of the interest and how people um, could uh, monetize what they were doing through YouTube. But yeah. before that, I think it was just an interest. Look, look what I've done. And they put it all on YouTube. But it became more of a science and more of a, a business venture after 2014. Yeah, because I was just thinking from the standpoint of like you creating your own network and your own channel, that probably at that point in time, it was probably very innovative because not a lot of people were necessarily doing that yet. Not yet, no. Yeah. Not yet. So, so yeah, I, I, I learned from different models that was available online and I said, okay, I'm going to tweak it and make it my own and add my own uh, feminine energy to it. So, <laughs> the first, the first uh, network was like pink and purple, and I've kind of like changed it. I keep tweaking the look of it to keep it fresh. Yeah. Uh, for you know uh, where we're at right now, so this is pretty much what I've done. I, whatever door was in front of me, so okay, if, if this is not going to be an open door for me, I'm going to make my own. I'm going to make my own platform, and that's what I did. I love and that. Then at, and then at that point, 2015, 2016, the door opened and they said, okay, we like what you're doing. Can can we take some of the content and put it on our show? And I said, okay, of course. So now I have the show, uh, which started off as a whim, now is on HDWIN Caribbean, which is Rogers Bell 5, and it's also going to be picked up by Afro Global, uh, which is, again, another specialty channel on Bell 5. So it's on two TV networks. That's amazing. Did you ever think that would happen? Yes. <laughs> You're like, yes. I, I, you know what? Janet, yes, I had to think that way. Otherwise, I would have said, why did I sign up for this and just go back to teaching? Yeah. 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 I had to see it. Yeah. It's what kept me going. So is there, um, if you think back in your career, is there anything that was that you feel personally was like the biggest highlight or something that you got the most excited about where you were like, wow, this is so exciting. Cause I know, like, I know you've won a ton of different awards for, um, different work in your community. Um, also around in, um, production and broadcasting. So if you were to think back, what is one of those things that's the most memorable to you? Well, the most important thing for me will always be my children. Mm. They will always be my wow. They, they always amaze me. I, I am very proud to be their mother. Um, three wonderful children, two girls and a boy, Navon, who's 26, Kyra, who's 24, and my son, Josiah, who's 21. They're the, the ultimate. But the coolest thing that happened this year, two cool things happened. Uh, I got to go to Fort McMurray, Alberta. And Fort McMurray was the place where they had uh, the horrific forest fires that devastated the city. And I was invited to go speak about black history. And I wrote a speech before I got there because I thought, okay, I'm just going to do a little presentation on history. And but when I got there, I only had like a couple of hours to prepare before the presentation. I said, I asked them, um, you know, a cab guy to pick me up and I wanted to go, of course, to Walmart, experience 
<laughs> Walmart and Fort McMurray and then, you know, dollar stores. That's just who I am. I just like to, you know, just check things out. So he, he picked me up and then I started to see the tree line and I saw the, the devastation that that was that remained from that that time last year, two years ago rather. And I said, Wow, they're still recovering, huh? And he's yeah, and he started to engage in a conversation with me about, you know, how people left. He went to Edmonton, you know, people would stand outside their homes and watch it burn to the ground. And I'm like, wow, wow. You know, so just kind of took it all in and then did my little shopping therapy. And then he came back to the hotel and I looked at this speech, having listened to him and having seen what was out there. I said, oh, I can't, I can't say this speech. This is going to mean absolutely nothing. Yeah. So I stayed up all night. And and the um, the presentation was the following day. I typed out a brand new speech, and I presented to them a speech about hope and determination. And after the speech, they stood and they gave me a standing ovation. And the you know some of the people came up to me and gave me a hug, and they had tears in their eyes because they needed someone to. Um, to jumpstart their courage. A lot of them were just, you know, walking around kind of, um, you know, what's the word? They're just going through the motion of yeah. life. They're and in a fog. A lot of, yeah, they were still, a lot of them are still um, grief-stricken. Yeah. A lot of them were, you know, depressed, still traumatized, so they needed something fresh. And, and I said, okay, well, it, if I've come this far, I've got to do it right. And we still keep on that. A very cool thing to happen. Yeah, but you know, Nikki, it's so funny because you sharing that story just tells me something about your own characteristic, right? Like, how many people would go in there? They're like, I've got a canned presentation. This is what I'm doing. I've already said it. But instead, you kind of made it so much more meaningful to the actual community based on where they are. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. And so what were, you mentioned there's two things, two amazing things yeah. this year. What's and then, the second? Um, I think two weeks after that, I was invited to Ottawa by uh, the um, Citizenship um, Ministry. They had a program uh, in front of a group of people that was going to be televised, and I was going to share the panel with the Honorable Jean Augustine the very first black female parliamentarian. So we sat and we talked about our experiences in the different areas of life. And I thought, and I, and I was like starstruck because here is a legend. Yeah. Here's a woman who opened doors for me and so many other people. And we are together on the same panel. And it really hit home. Like, wow, Nikki, this is a pretty cool life. <laughs> You know, like everything you've done, everything, every every mishap, every misfortune, every bad thing led up to many good things. And I had to celebrate when that happened. And I was so delighted. I was jubilant. I was, you know, my I kept I couldn't stop grinning that whole day. <laughs> and and I shared my story beside Miss Augustine, and I thought, yeah. Never forget it. I'm never going to forget this. It was just a, a wonderful moment. 
Yeah. And those... there are many, many wonderful moments that have come after that. But um, like sitting and having um, coffee with uh, the NDP leader, Andrea Harworth, in her office in Queen's Park, and her inviting me to become a candidate for the party. That was another beautiful moment. And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you um, this. How How is it that you decided that now, of all times, you are ready or you want to get into politics? Well, quite frankly, I never thought that I would be in politics. But I always knew that I wanted to help people in, in some capacity. And this is what I've been doing ever since I was a little girl. When... Um, when uh, Andrea Harwis and I connected, it was through the Ontario Black History Society. Um, I've been, you know, involved with the OBHS for a number of years, and then in November 9th, 2015, I was uh, unanimously voted as um, their leader, the president of the the organization, nonprofit organization to promote Black history, and there was a branch that um, Andrew was invited to last uh, this, this past January. We have one every year, the, the last Sunday of January, to uh, kick off Black History Month in February. So she uh, attended with um, some of her colleagues, and I was invited after that uh, to meet with her. There was something that she wanted to share with me. So we sat and we had a, a wonderful conversation in her office, and that was March 8th of this year. March 8th was the day, was International Women's Day. I'll never forget it. <laughs> and we sat and uh, she said, you know, we've been noticing certain things that you've been doing and uh, we like what you do. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And she said, uh, we think you'd be a very strong candidate, would you consider uh, running for the NDP? And I just paused for a moment because it didn't occur to me and I just said, you know what? Yes. Yes. And it, it was a very exciting moment. And from that point to now, there's been a very um, amazing support from the NDP team and uh, great support from my family and friends and colleagues. And we're just going to move forward uh, in, in this uh, wonderful journey uh, to help people in the community uh, to give them a voice and uh, to improve the quality of their life. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how like where this journey takes you, and um, I'd love to hear more about it, like in a year or two years, because <laughs> I think well, no, I think you're going to learn a lot, and it's going to be like so many different experiences that are so varied, right? Right. Uh, and I think I think politics is tough. You know, anything that um, that faces challenges, because whatever you are trying to do from an authentic place to improve the, the quality of people's lives or um, change certain aspects of what is the status quo, there's going to be some kind of um, maybe resistance, mm -hmm. or there's going to be um, some misunderstandings, um, anything that shakes up whatever has been known as the system for a while, uh, it, it's always going to take a little time 
for the, the alterations to be made, so to speak. But it has to be done. It has to be done. Anything great that has happened in history happened out of great change. Yeah. You know, the civil rights movement, um, so many things in our recent history that's happened. It happened. It, it, it wasn't comfortable. But when you, when you step out of your comfort zone, that's when great things can happen. So I am ready to step out of my comfort zone. I am very happy to be encouraged and inspired by people in my community. And I, and I thank, again, my leader, uh, Angia Horvath, who has given me the courage to do this and so, to run this race. Yeah, so it's interesting because you said you're ready to step outside your comfort zone. Do you uh, not think that you've been stepping outside your comfort zone your entire life? You know what? I think I have. <laughs> I've always been that risk taker, and I've, I've always um, been able to uh, jump over hurdles of, of uh, confrontation, of challenges. And I think this is probably just who I am, um, that all, all that has happened prepared me for this. Yeah. And so if you were to think back, um, and we may have already addressed it or not, but I'm going to throw the question out there just because I'm curious. Um, in your career, what do you think has been the biggest challenge or hurdle that you've come across? Well, I think the challenge of being a woman mm. um, when I was, you know, working in TV, it, although is innovative and it, it embraces technology, there's still an old school mentality of, you know, you're, you're a woman, so you're not going to uh, just pick up certain things very well, or there's still, there's still a boys club, I'm sorry to say, when it comes to um, a group of producers um, just not really embracing the idea that a woman producer is, is a part of them, that we're all equal. So I had to kind of deal with that. And then um, then there's still the subtle racism that exists. Um, there's uh, a glass ceiling in, in certain um, aspects of, uh, of opportunities. It, it just wasn't presenting itself. And I thought, okay, am I not working hard enough? Um, what is it that I'm not doing that is not giving me the opportunity? And, and it, it's just one where it, it was it, it kind of decided that that door is just not going to open for me because of who I am, right? Because of, of my, my my background, and there's nothing I can do about it at that point except go around the door and create a door for myself. So those were probably the two most obvious challenges. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. And so, is there someone who you feel has had like the biggest impact or influence on your life? Um, well, I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't be able to do anything without God in my life. So I am very deeply connected to my source mm. that inspires me, that gives me the, um, the abilities that I have. They're all God-given. And everything that I'm going to be doing, um, I, I do it through his guidance. I, I pray a lot. 
Uh, so this is a very important part of, of who I am. And then I think, too, I have to give a lot of, a lot of um, acknowledgement to my parents who, you know, tried very hard for me. They, they did the best they could as parents, and I learned a lot of discipline. I, I learned, um, you know, how to be focused. I learned uh, just certain things that maybe people take for granted, um, just being gracious, loving people. That Those were examples from my parents right. who were very, very much in the community now. So um, that and then, you know, a, a couple of friends who have been there from the beginning who aren't going anywhere and who taught me uh, to um, be the best of who I am. They challenge me daily to be the best and they don't accept mediocre from me. And sometimes it's, it's a hard pill to swallow because, you know, sometimes you get comfortable. You're thinking, okay, well, I've, I've arrived at some certain amount of success. You know, I can take it easy. They're like, no, you can't relax. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best thing. friends to you have. You gotta keep working hard. You gotta. This is. There's still more to do. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so I listen. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. I love those people as friends too. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, they're they're great friends to have. And then I had the friends who, you know, uh, showed me certain aspects of who they are that taught me about me and what I needed to change about myself in in um, not the best light. You know, they they done things that were very hurtful. But again, I learned, and yeah. this is all that had to happen in order for me to get where I am. And so if you were to look back on your career and you can pick from any standpoint, what is the one best thing that you ever did in order to get to your place of passion or where you are now? Because, you know, sometimes if we look back at our history, we can say, oh, if I hadn't have done X, Y, Z, I might not be here today. Is there anything you can think um, of? To be honest with you, Janet, I don't regret anything. And I'm grateful for everything. Yeah. There's not one example that I could draw that say, you know what, this was the most, this was the epitome that led me to this. They were all experiences that I had to um, have in my life. And each one developed steps for me to get to the next step. And each one is getting higher and higher. Uh, with God in control. So I'm grateful for them. Okay. Um, so I want to just be aware of your time. Um, I do have like a couple of quick rapid fire questions if you're interested in answering some of these. Sure. And it doesn't like, my question is quick. Your answer can be as long as you'd like it to be. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So uh, what is one thing that your mom or dad always told you? One thing, they always told me to be um, polite. Always say please and thank you. Okay. And have you ever quit or given up on something? I've given up on negativity. Oh, I like that answer. That is good. That's good. Um, and what is one thing you cannot live without? 
Oh, wow. That would be chocolate frozen yogurt. <laughs> well, that's at least a pretty healthy choice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I've totally enjoyed our conversation today, Nikki. You know, I always love chatting with you. I wish we saw each other yeah. more. You're too busy. <laughs> And I think you're going to get a lot busier. <laughs> Just a little bit, but I always have time for Janet. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. We might have to do a follow-up, actually. Um, I love that. Anytime. So um, I'm sure that um, after listening to this, people might be interested in finding out more because obviously in an hour, we don't cover everything about you or what it is you're doing moving forward and, and seeing that direction. And people will be curious to see what happens. Uh, where can people find you uh, online? What's the best place to go? Okay. Well, they can go to my website, the NikkiClarkNetwork.com. And if they want to follow what's going on in the political race, then they can go to um, my Facebook page called Nikki Clark. Okay, great. And if people like wanted to send you a message or contact you, is it better to send you like a Facebook message or are you on Twitter? Like what do you prefer? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Nikki Clark show. I'm also on LinkedIn, Nikki Clark. And then uh, they can certainly leave um, a message for me on Nikki Clark network.com or Facebook. Okay, great. I, I, I'm Highly responsive, according to Facebook. <laughs> well, with all the data they're collecting, they're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We know they're right. So well, they are right. Thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you all the best of luck um, with your campaign run. And I will definitely be supporting and cheering for you. Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you for everything that you're doing uh, in the community for, you know, just giving a voice for people and allowing them to uh, share candidly about their background. So you have a blessed day and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. You too. Oh, take care.